namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sangkang namasang A few days ago I asked that as a community we could all start learning to recite the verses of dedication of punya in Pali, uh, which we normally chant in English. However, as I explained when I mentioned this, the reason for asking that we chant it in Pali is because, as far as I'm concerned, there's a a very wrong translation in the English version and there's a line that says may all desires and attachments quickly cease and what the Buddha taught was craving needs to cease and not desire and to put out there this idea that there's something inherently wrong with desire and is, uh, that's a misrepresentation of the Buddha's teachings and I certainly think that's a mistake to be doing that and I felt this way for many years and even thought about raising it at one of the elders council meetings to see if we can get a new translation and probably in fact I should do that however for now we're going to chant it in Pali and, and resolve it that way to be blaming desire for the suffering that we experience as a result of being lost in craving is the same as if you're cooking in the kitchen and, and you burn yourself on the stove and then you blame the electricity or, or the gas, as the case may be, for the suffering. You, write a letter of complaint to the gas company or to the electricity board saying your, your electricity burnt me or your gas burnt me. Well, obviously, that's frivolous. That's, you know, that's clearly a mistake. So why don't we see the mistake we make when we blame desire? We need to look closely at this, consider this. And certainly, something Ajahn Chah was very clear about when I think about this subject I often recall the period when I was sent a tape by Ajahn Tiridamo. I think this was maybe my fourth year as a monk and I was living in the north of Thailand province called Chiang Rai and a little Ampur or district called Ampur Pan and Ajahn Tiridamo was living at the main monastery Wat Bapong and that year there were a whole lot of monks who had come up from Bangkok and Ajahn Chah was, was giving the teachings in the dialect of central Thailand and that was something that more of us understood and by that stage of my time in Thailand I was really getting a reasonable grasp on the Thai language and, but not the dialect of the northeast in Thai and so that these talks were given the dialect of central Thailand was really uh, very helpful and Ajahn Tiridamo 
was kindly sending me tapes. And there was one tape that he sent me just on this topic, which I uh, proceeded to translate into English. And it's these days it's printed in the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah under the, the title of Reading the Natural Mind. And, and in there, uh, Ajahn Chah points out very explicitly how uh, the Buddha had desires, but his desires were associated with wisdom. To the idea that we've got to get rid of desires is a, is a massive mistake. It's, it's, uh, again, as he points out in that talk, he said, if there's no desire, there's no way to practice. We need to want to practice. We need to want to be free from suffering. However, what is our relationship to this movement of heart that we refer to as wanting or as desire. If our relationship was one of finding identity as it, we cling to it, which is, of course is you know, when we're very young, uh, that's what we tend to do. Nobody points it out to us and, and it's understandable we grow up thinking this is me, this, this passion is who I am and, and we cling to it and, and feels like me and it's easy, it's very easy, it's very understandable to be identified as it. However, the consequence of that is that we get burnt and we suffer. And that form of wanting, the Buddha referred to as tanha or craving, that's not wanting or desire associated with right understanding or wisdom. And so this is something that uh, I certainly wouldn't want us to be encouraging that concept, that idea, that misunderstanding that somehow desire is responsible for our suffering. It's not. What's responsible for our suffering is the way that we relate to it when we cling to it. And again, as I was saying, we're very early on in life, somehow, I've, I'm not sure exactly how it is, I have not really looked into it, but the fact that we do become caught up in this misunderstanding of the nature of desire. And when we fight it, we become, a very early stage of our lives, we become alienated, particularly in our Western culture. We become alienated from our desire. We make an enemy out of it. And make an enemy out of ourselves. And we're fighting ourselves. And, and this is surely at the, at the source of the, the deep, wound of separation, that feeling of alienation that we're all, I'm sure, familiar with and is, again, the, the cause of so much of our dissatisfaction and confusion. And so healing that wound of separation, feeling of being deeply divided, does involve disciplining attention to inquire into what is our relationship with desire. And that could well mean ploughing through. I mean, I was reflecting on this recently and remembered a time when I, I, mean, I don't know how old I was, six, seven, eight, very young. And I remember uh, my mother had taken me into town for some reason and, and we were in the bakery shop. This would be on Thames Street in Morrinsville, the little small town I was growing up in in those days. And, and there were a group of housewives in this bakery shop. I remember standing there surrounded by all these, 
these women are a lot taller than me. I was still very short, and I think I kind of almost came up to the height of the counter. And, and there was a, a baking display happening. This was long before television and such things. This is, this is how you learnt about such matters as different ways of baking. You went to the baker and somebody did a display. And so there was this baking display going on and, and uh, the cook had finished making these cookies and had spread them out on the countertop and then invited people to take one and try them out. And nobody seemed to be moving, as I remember, but I really wanted one of those cookies. And, and yet I felt terribly embarrassed about it. So instead of just reaching up and saying thank you and taking a cookie and eating it, I remember reaching up and grabbing a cookie and running out onto the street and scoffing it down. And I was embarrassed about wanting to eat a cookie. Now, even at that very early stage of my life, I had somehow learned to make a problem out of wanting. And I have ideas about how it could have happened, given the conditioning I was being subjected to. And however, whatever the causes might be for becoming alienated and confused in our relationship with our own heart energy, we need to look at it and, and in effect, own it. If we're always fighting it and trying to bypass it, trying to get rid of it, because we think the Buddha said that wanting is the source of suffering and may all desires and attachments quickly cease. Even the subject of attachment, these days the understanding about the important stages of children, the right kind of attachment, an early stage of life, and it would be good if we could come up with another translation for that word as well. Like grasping. However, it is that we became so confused in our relationship with wanting if we don't learn to address this dysfunction and really get to know ourselves, really get to meet ourselves there to the point where we can say, I want this. And if we hear the Buddha's teachings on anatta and the believing in the deluded nature of a solid substantial self is uh, causes so much of our suffering we could make the mistake of trying to do away with this deluded relationship with wanting because it's hard work and there's a risk of getting burnt especially if we've learned to deny desire very early on in life and repress it basically desire, aversion, fear. Once we become alienated from our own hearts, all of it becomes a struggle. And then we develop a personality structure as a defense against it, against feeling what we really feel. And then we spend the rest of our life maintaining, promoting, polishing this personality. Well, fortunately, if you come across the Buddha's teachings and he'd his encouragement to get real about the perceptions that we believe in, the stories we tell ourselves, the feelings we feel, the thoughts we entertain. Don't just believe the way they appear. Going for refuge to the Dhamma is going for refuge to actuality, not apparent reality. Yes, it, all sorts of things can appear to be a certain way, you know, like sense of aversion can appear to be something that if I follow this aversion and tell somebody what I think of them, I'll feel much better. Well, probably by this stage of life, all of us know that doesn't work out. Well, likewise with desire, if I 
You know, I can't be honest. But we don't even know why we can't be honest anymore. It just happened so early on in our life for many of us. We became alienated from it. So we become habitually manipulating of our own heart energy. So working with mindfulness, with indriya sangara, sense restraint, conscious composure and, and wise reflection, feeling what we feel. I want a new robe. I know that the stores master's got lots of material in the, in the clothes store there and people have given us lots of robe material and I want a new robe. This one here is, doesn't fit me properly and or I don't like the colour or whatever the reason. Are we allowed to feel that? Can we feel, I want a new robe? Really feel it and feel in a way whereby we don't lose perspective and get caught into a struggle, feeling guilty about, I shouldn't want a new robe. If I was a decent monk, I would just accept what given. And, uh, or, why should I have to ask anyway? There's so much cloth there, it's all sunga property. Why should I have to ask the store's monk for it and get into a story like that? And, uh, arguing, what's it all about? Basically, I don't know how to simply want a new robe. And we can look at that, and we need to look at that. We need to look at the struggle and own that. Mm-hmm. I want a new robe. Or I don't want to have to go to evening puja. The way some of these guys chant is just so... Every evening I've got to put up with this. I really don't want it. And we can make a problem out of it. What really is the problem? You don't have to like the way people chant. Is it really a problem that you're sitting with people making a great effort to keep moral precepts and exercise discipline and cultivate patience and kindness and pursuit of liberation? And is, that, is that really a problem? And is that inherently a problem? And, well, I just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with not wanting? There's nothing wrong with not wanting to go evening pursuit. There's absolutely nothing wrong with not wanting to go to evening puja. There's absolutely nothing wrong with not liking the way people chant. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting a new robe. Where does it become a problem? It becomes an apparent problem at the point where we get into this struggle with wanting a new robe, not wanting to give chanting. That struggle is something that we're doing. That's not the fault of wanting. That's to do with another dimension. And so we need to be looking into this. And one reason why I'm mentioning it here is because I know recently I was speaking about, quite a bit about the Buddha's teachings on not-self and anatta. And at some stage I, I quoted that interview between the English woman who was visiting Wat Pong and had that Q&A session with Ajahn Chah and, and she later went on to become our first Sita Dra in our community, Sister Rochana. And, and she was asking Ajahn Chah, how is it that you can develop samadhi if there's no self? And Ajahn Chah, apparently, I heard reported, very wisely replied, well, 
when we're developing samadhi, we're working with a sense of self. And then when we're working in vipassana, we're working with not-self. And then, he went on to say, when you really know what's what, you're beyond both self and not-self. Really grateful to Ajahn Chah for pointing that out. The importance of developing our practice in a way that includes and takes responsibility for the sense of self that we have. We have this sense of self, and it may be painful. That's quite likely. That can be very true, the sense of self we have. But if we hear the Buddha's teachings on anatta as an invitation to try and get rid of the sense of self we have, well then we're mishearing the teachings. Rather the invitation is to look into this sense of self, examine it very, very carefully, take full responsibility for it. And, and if we don't, well then any samadhi we develop is likely to be out of balance. And before we can build up too much momentum in our practicing and get too deep, there does need to be a steadiness on the level of just being a normal human being. Our desires and aversions and fears are not an enemy of practice, but this is, this is the stuff that we feel obstructed by, but it's also the stuff that's going to teach us. Many of you will be familiar with the discourse the Buddha gave called the Discourse on the Greatest Blessings or the Mahamangala Sutta. And in this discourse there's one stanza where the Buddha talks about insight into the Four Noble Truths. And then there's two stanzas following that uh, celebrating the profundity of those insights. But then there are eight stanzas talking about developing oneself as a person. One of the lines is atasamapanitija, oneself rightly directed. I quoted this uh, not so long ago, talking about where the Buddha didn't hold back from using the expression of self in a conventional way. Developing the conventional self, as the Mahamangala Sutta uh, discusses is it's really important and the insight into the four noble truths comes towards the very end of that discourse and the eight stanzas prior to that talking about and begins with with talking about be careful who you're associated with well actually quite literally it says don't associate with foolish people they'll pull you down and that's the implication associate with with wise pandita nanchasirana associate with those who are going to lift you up Honour that which is worthy honour or bow down to that which is worth bowing to. And that means we've got to stop and contemplate. We've got to take responsibility for what is it that I bow to? What is it that I'm interested in bowing to? What is more important than anything else? Taking responsibility for that, not just doing it because somebody else did it or because our parents did it or our grandparents did it, but using our minds, using our capacity to reflect. Say, what is truly worthy of honour? And am I able to bow to it? This 
exercise in wise reflection, uh, remembering what Ajahn Chah said to my sister Rochina, she was to become, that if we want to develop samadhi, if we want to develop collectedness, we need to meet ourselves on all of these levels. You know, like the, talking about the five hindrances, which is the five nivarana, which is very well known. And, and these are not just ideas, but these are, these are real obstructions, or they feel like real obstructions when you meet them. You know, like aversion and ill will. You know, heart can become possessed by it. Why does a heart become possessed by ill will? Why do we feel overwhelmed by ill will? Because we don't know it. We haven't stopped to look at our relationship with ill will. It's quite understandable, probably very early on in life, you're taught if you're a good boy, good girl, you don't hate people, or at the very least you don't get angry at them. And, and, but probably we weren't given that much guidance in learning how to really develop our faculties of investigation so we can feel what it feels like to feel ill will. Does it really feel good to feel ill will? Does it really bring advantage and clarity to dwell on negativity and have a hypercritical mind? And if we can't reflect on it, well then all we're doing is just moralizing to ourselves about, oh, I shouldn't have ill will, or other people shouldn't have ill will, and, or I'm bad because I've got ill will. Or restlessness and doubt. All of these nivaranas, all of these apparent obstructions to practice, if we get interested in them, then we can learn to take responsibility for our relationship to them. Instead of just willfully concentrating on a meditation object, trying to force ourselves to become concentrated so as to then overcome all the things that are painful in life and then have an insight, which means we get rid of the self. Now, that approach might appear attractive, but from my own personal practice and what I've observed in, in others, it's, it's a really dangerous approach. You might build up a lot of energy and a lot of momentum, but if in the process one of these nivaranas, one of these hindrances, shows its ugly head, it can then capture all that energy you've developed and become intensely strong. Not just a mild form of ill will, but a, a screaming rage. And where did that come from? Well, because we didn't know our relationship with ill will. And we didn't know our relationship with restlessness or worry or doubt. So, being careful to develop the skills and the skills that mean we can meet ourselves where we're at taking the sense of self seriously, not just dismissing it. Uh, some people, I wouldn't be surprised if some people hearing this <clears throat> would perhaps feel, you know, this is a mistake because the Buddha taught not self and Anicca Dukkha Anatta, we don't need to be dealing with the self. However, the self, the Buddha did teach a lot about it and, and if it's obstructing us, if it's getting in the way, then we need to slow down in our striving and meet ourselves where we're at. Whether it's in desire or whether it's in anger. It can be, you know, with anger, it can be really frightening and feel very threatening. 
to sit there and say, I really resent such and such. I really do not like that. I really, and really own that. And this is my ill will. This is my ill will. This is my ill will. Are we allowed to do that? Or do we have to get rid of it? Well, we can experiment, but my strong recommendation would be don't try and get rid of it. Feel what we feel when we feel ill will and feel how bad it feels, feel how painful it feels. And, and in that realistic relationship with ill will, or realistic relationship with desire, we're getting to know ourselves. And that's where a shift or a change in our relationship to ourself is perhaps more likely to take place. And perhaps even a letting go of ourselves might start to happen. I mean, often I've likened the sense of self to the appearance of a rainbow. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying looking at a rainbow or painting a picture of a rainbow and, or taking a photograph of a rainbow. There's nothing wrong with that. We all know there's nothing wrong with that. However, if we believe that there's a pot of gold at the source of the rainbow and we go running after this rainbow, you know, desperately trying to reach the pot of gold, well, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's kind of a myth that you know, children might believe in. However, with the deluded sense of self, we do do something like that. There's this apparent substantial somebody here and we invest too much in it. We try to turn it into a source of security. My views, my opinions, my desires, they seem so tremendously important. And they feel so tremendously important. But that's just like you know, a child not understanding the nature of a rainbow. Or a child having a terrible dream and waking up and thinking the world is coming to an end. There's really a monster under the bed. And and the parents reassure the child, no, no, there's no monster under the bed. It's, it was just a dream. And so thankfully, likewise, our teachers point out that these, these distorted ideas we have about our heart energy, as threatening as they can feel at times, if we equip ourselves with a sense of self-respect and self-confidence that comes with a commitment to developing integrity and we're exercising mindfulness and, and restraint and wise reflection, then there's a chance that we'll be able to turn around and look at our fear. We don't even know what it is we're afraid of sometimes. Maybe it's not craving, maybe it's not ill will, but maybe it's fear, anxiety. And we need to work to the point where we can meet ourselves, receive ourselves there, and include all of ourselves in this practice. To think that we can bypass these stages is dangerous and, and counterproductive. Some of you might be familiar with that story in the scriptures where the Buddha realized that there was somebody in a, in a village who was ripe, who was ready to understand the teachings and to arrive at deep insight and so he, he made a point of travelling to that village to give these teachings but when he arrived there he found that this this villageman was uh, was hungry hadn't eaten and before he gave the teachings he made a point of asking the other villagers to make sure that this guy got fed properly 
and that could well have happened in, in reality. Also, symbolically, it's worth noticing that something like that happens to us a lot of the time. We might think that we're ready for deep insight and, and put ourselves on retreat and under all sorts of extreme pressure because we want, we want to be free from suffering, we want to be free from this deluded sense of me. However, if our deeply held sense of need, emotional need, psychological need, have never been adequately met, then perhaps we need to stop and look at that. It doesn't mean to say that we have to go for holidays to all the places on the planet that we wanted to go before we sort out our spiritual life. Not at all. However, when these apparent obstructions do arise in heart and in mind, to dismiss them as irrelevant can be creating an obstruction. And even when it feels really threatening, it's, uh, the mind is very tricky like this, really tricky. And if you've got some deeply held hurt from goodness knows where, don't know how it got there, and really don't want to know about it, and it can be so quick, the mind, to just come up with a story or a strategy and why I shouldn't be on this retreat any longer or, I, uh, it's, or it's somebody else's problem. It's, it's the teachings that I'm given that are the problem or it's the weather in this country. If only I could go and live in Asia where they don't have terrible winters and, or some other reason for why I don't slow down settle, become aware of the whole body-mind and quietly ask what is the pain that I want to get away from? As I've quoted many, many times before, quoting the Buddha, that it's not knowing two things that means we stay stuck in this difficult situation. Not knowing suffering and not knowing the cause of suffering. So when we find our mind really in a hurry to get out of the situation we're in, instead of just believing in the stories that our mind's telling us, it can be very useful to slow down, feel what we feel, and ask the question, where is the pain? Where is the hurt? Where is the suffering? Is it really outside of me? Or is it inside me? feel it in the body, is it in the shoulders, is it in the heart, is it in the belly, and inquiring very carefully, very sensitively, because the reason that we hide the hurt is because it hurts, and if we hid it away at an early stage of life when we were particularly vulnerable and we really felt like we couldn't handle it, and we probably actually couldn't handle it, then that perception needs to be received also, like, I can't handle this. That's a perception, that's a feeling. It's an absolutely, perfectly understandable perception and feeling. However, at this stage of life, and hopefully with some degree of mindfulness, sense restraint, wise reflection, we don't have to believe the stories. We can turn around and look at it and let it teach us. Teach us how to let go. 
Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Handa yang dhamma katha yasa. <laughs>